Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to the final Money Talk podcast for 2023. It's Friday, the 22nd of December. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, the Biden administration is reportedly discussing raising tariffs on some Chinese goods, including electric vehicles, in an attempt to bolster the US clean energy industry against cheaper Chinese exports. A bipartisan group of US lawmakers is urging President Joe Biden to block Nippon Steel's $14.9 billion purchase of US steel on national security grounds as the takeover faces a political backlash in Washington. U.S. economic growth and inflation were slower in the third quarter than previously reported, supporting the potential for a soft landing. The American economy expanded at an annualized pace of 4.9% in the third quarter, slightly below 5.2% in the second estimates. Angola has said it's leaving OPEC in a blow to the oil cartel. The decision comes after the producer group lowered Angola's oil output target last month as part of an ongoing series of cuts led by Saudi Arabia to prop up prices. After 16 years, Angola's departure from OPEC has heightened concerns about the organisation's ability to stabilise global prices amid disputes over oil production quotas. On today's programme, I'm joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities, and David Roche, President of Global Strategist at Independent Strategy. And with a view from South Korea, it's Peter Kim, Head of Global Investment Strategy at KB Financial Group in Seoul. And if you want to get in touch for the final time this year, please go to my website, it's peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com and while you're there please take a look at my Asian newsletter updated every business day On Wall Street, US stocks advanced on Thursday after recovering from their biggest sell-off in three months in the prior session, with the latest mixed economic data adding to expectations that borrowing costs could ease next year. The S&P 500 added 1% to 4,747, leaving it a little more than 1% away from a new record high. The Dow gained 322 points, or 0.9%, to 37,404. Meanwhile, the Nasdaq Composite advanced 1.3% to 14,964. The global bond rally took a breather as the yield on the US two-year hovered around 4.35%. The rate on the US 10-year edged up four basis points to 3.89%. The US dollar resumed its slide, falling against all of its group of 10 peers Thursday. The US dollar index dropped 0.6% to below 102 and nearing its lowest level in five months. Gold gained 0.8% over the session to $2,044 an ounce. Brent crude oil futures fell below $78 per barrel at one stage on Thursday after Angola said it was leaving OPEC. Brent crude oil settled 0.4% lower at $79.39 a barrel. And Hong Kong stocks reversed earlier losses. The Hang Seng Index, which was down 1% at the open, turned around to close 7 points higher at 16621 Chinese Asian 
shares also rebounded. The Shanghai Composite ended the day 0.6% firmer at 2,919. And it looks like the Hang Seng projected to open about 70 points higher this morning. That's around 0.4%. Futures markets pointing to a start for the index of about 16,690. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. And for the final time this year, we welcome our regular Friday morning commentator, Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities. Morning, Francis. Hi, good morning. And also with us is David Roche, President and Global Strategist at Independent Strategy. Morning to you, David. And good morning, Peter, and good morning, Francis. Let's start with uh, some trade protectionism news. The Wall Street Journal reported Thursday that the Biden administration is discussing raising tariffs on some Chinese goods, including electric vehicles, in an attempt to bolster the U.S. clean energy industry against cheaper Chinese exports. Also, China has banned exports of technologies for processing rare earths as President Xi Jinping's administration hits back against US-led curbs on advanced computer chip sales to Chinese companies. And China has suspended tax concessions for 12 chemical compound imports from Taiwan in in retaliation for what Beijing deems to be a violation of a trade agreement. Um, And Brussels has launched an anti-dumping investigation into imports of biodiesel from China. I mean, Francis, seems like we're exiting this year and entering the new year with uh, trade protectionism, tariffs, uh, restrictions, um, nowhere near being resolved or being eased. Yeah, it's a terrible situation. Actually, it started with the... uh, uh, Joe, uh, Joe Biden's Inflation Reduction Act. The act was designed to bring uh, uh, electric car manufacturing to the U.S. So, because uh, China already uh, Chinese companies uh, own about sixty percent of the global resources for lithium, and mm. actually produces something like sixty percent of the. Uh, car batteries. So uh, the only way to get around it is to have a strict U.S. content. That is what the Inflation Reduction Act uh, specified. That uh, just about everything uh, from raw material to the battery you make and 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 for the electric car, everything, uh, you uh, must be made in the U.S. To qualify for the seven thousand five hundred US dollars in the in subsidy, so this is a definitely a a, a trade war trade war of the U for the US against China hmm. because the Chinese already have a dominant position in in electric car vehicles. It it seems, doesn't it, that this Inflation Reduction Act, it's nothing about reducing inflation. It's more a new industrial policy for the United States designed to sort of immune itself from competition from China. Yeah, definitely. So, 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 so... uh, uh, it, it, it's ironic that uh, uh, the U.S. talks about free trade and uh, they only talk about free trade if it suits them. 
Yep, yep. David, we're sort of becoming immune to this, aren't we, really? We, we sort of assume now that tariffs have become the norm, whether it's, uh, you know, China, whether it's the US putting tariffs on Chinese goods, China retaliating, then we've got EU-China problems. Um, is this any, any way in which this can be resolved? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, I'd say there are several levels to this. First of all, uh, the division of the world into uh, warring factions on the one hand, the kind of alliance of democracies, and on the other, the alliance of totalitarian states like Russia and China uh, are the bedrock of what this uh, uh, industrial policy, as you rightly called it, is all about. What is the industrial policy about? It's actually an accelerated form of ending de- of ending globalization and carrying out deglobalization by repatriating industry and everything to do with its know-how to friendly shores or to your own country within each alliance. So I would say that this is going to get worse, uh, not better over the next couple of years. And it is all part and parcel of uh, what is happening in geopolitics worldwide. And that is, of course, uh, to put it mildly, the death knell of globalization and its reversal into these sort of industrial policies, which you're going to see pretty well everywhere in the two uh, blocks which confront each other. So no change, and I think it will deepen and get worse. Mm. It seems, Francis, doesn't it, that the US just doesn't want any sort of competition, doesn't want any sort of foreign uh, acquisitions of its companies. We're seeing now US lawmakers urging President Biden to block Nippon Steel's uh, purchase of US steel, (laughs) even though, you know, Japan is supposed to be uh, the US's biggest ally in Asia. um, It doesn't seem to matter, does it? It doesn't matter at all. Well, you know, you're moving into an electoral period in which people are going to um, compete on the basis of the most inane and stupid ideas. Now, I don't actually think that um, a lot of uh, what is going on about deglobalization is either inane or stupid. It's simply substituting the achievement of security uh, at the price of uh, productivity. But I think, of course, the opposition to a deal by an efficient Japanese uh, steel producer to buy a U.S. inefficient one, that doesn't fall well into into the jigsaw. It's it's incoherent and it's stupid. Mm. Uh, But, you know, that's that's electoral time. What do you expect? Mm. Francis, what do you make of this? It's, um, it's as David says, it's, uh, you know, it's quite an efficient Japanese company. Maybe in some ways this would be good for U.S. steel. Yeah, definitely. Actually, actually uh, uh, U.S. Steel used to be uh, the, the largest steelmaker in, in the U.S. And then now uh, uh, the U.S. should concentrate on the, on the things that they do best, like semiconductor and the internet, things like that. And they are losing out on the basic manufacturing, uh, including steelmaking. I think uh, uh, Japanese and Korean steelmakers are much more efficient than they mm. are. So it's better that uh, they they let the uh, uh, acquisition to go ahead. Otherwise, the uh, U.S. steel will run into bankruptcy several years down the line. 
It, it does seem, doesn't it, hard to imagine why steel production is a national security issue. It seems that national security <laughs> is raised every time now as being the reason as to why certain mergers or acquisitions can't go ahead or certain things can't be imported or exported. Yeah, definitely. Uh, uh, not, not only that, they, they raise national security in the case of something like uh, uh, shrimp from Vietnam. <laughs> so uh, it really what it really matters is the votes for, for the congressional district. Uh, so, so it's all politics uh, instead of really trade consideration. Mm. David, I'm wondering. You know, obviously, we know for a while that uh, U.S.-China relationships uh, have been difficult. But I'm wondering, as we move into 2024, are EU-China relations in an even worse state than U.S.-China ones? Because at least there have been some signs, maybe, of the U.S.-China relationship stabilizing. But it seems that the EU and, and China are just talking past each other at the moment. Well, I think that's right. You know, there was a, a very recent uh, EU summit with China, which really was um, a dialogue de sur. It was a dialogue of people who were deaf or dumb <laughs> or both. But it's quite clear that the, there's no common ground at all. The, uh, the so-called um, comprehensive uh, investment agreement, uh, which was, you know, virtually drafted and uh, agreed to a couple of years ago that is completely dead in the water you couldn't get it through the european parliament which would have to ratify it if you tried and there i would say that the europeans have woken up to the fact that what china was trying to do with trade and its investment and everything else was to actually break europe asunder and there's a spying greek shipping ports i mean actually owning about 30 percent of european shipping port capacity and, you know, building roads in Bulgaria and stuff like that, trying to separate out the weaker members, Hungary included in its recent visit, you know, got all sorts of uh, electric plant, electric vehicle and battery investments in China. But, you know, the Europeans have woken up to this, so it's not going to work. Mm. Uh, and I would have said that Europe may be trotting along behind America, but essentially uh, the attitude on trade, the attitude on deglobalization is going to be the same. Now, of course, the big losers from this in Europe, in particular, the car producers, um, but that's just going to be, um, in a sense, collateral damage. The policy is not going to be shifted in the favor of European or in particular German car producers. That's not going to happen. So it's very much the same output. It's uh, the same chapter, but it's in a sense, the US has, has read, has gone further on, and Europe is coming up from behind with a with a, an increasing awareness, but there's not you you're not going to be able to put much air and gap between the two policies by the end of the year. Okay. Let, let's turn our attention to uh, to the central banks. The PBOC um, left its uh, benchmark interest rates on hold. The one-year loan prime rates, which is the peg for most household and corporate loans in the country, left at a record low of 3.45% uh, for the fourth consecutive month. The five-year benchmark loan rate, uh, which is the peg for most mortgages, that was unchanged at 4.2% for the sixth straight month. Um, Francis, as we move into 2024, um, a lot of focus on the Chinese economy and what the government uh, can try and do to uh, to support it. Clearly, it doesn't like lowering interest rates, does it? We've learned that already uh, through the course <laughs> of this year. But what can it do uh, to try and help the economy? 
Well, I think it can uh, release more liquidity into the system. The uh, the the the, the uh, crux of the problem is really the bad uh, property loans. They uh, uh, I, I read somewhere the property loans make up or something like twenty percent of uh, all bank lending. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and most of them are really going sour. There are very few uh, liquid property developers in China now. Longfo is one of them, but uh, for the private ones, they are all <laughs> they they all defaulted, and and, and it's difficult. Uh, e, uh, in the current situation, even if you lower interest rate any further. You cannot stimulate demand. The problem is there's just too much money tied up in bad property loans, and uh, and, and especially for the the average citizen who mm. who who bought the uh, pop, uh, unfinished properties, they still have to pay the mortgages, uh, make mortgage payments, but they have nowhere to live, and that's created a lot of this uh, discontent. And so I think uh, uh, I I don't think the central bank is really addressing the real problem for for the poor demand. Mm-hmm. I think the uh, uh, it has to do on the policy level how to uh, resolve the property crisis. David, if this property pr- crisis is going to be resolved, someone's got to bear these losses, haven't they? There are enormous losses in the system, sitting on the balance sheets of banks, of, of local governments, of off-balance sheets, of financing vehicles. Someone somewhere, these losses aren't going to go away. Someone's got to bear them, haven't they? And it seems that the Chinese government <laughs> uh, wants to make the big banks bear quite a lot of it. Well, look, Peter, we've talked about this before, uh, and I don't want to repeat myself like a a worn-out record, but um, until the problem of actually writing down the value of all the dud assets and the dud loans in the Chinese economy is faced, all of the money you can print to keep the old alive while trying to grow the new, all the money that you can spend fiscally building roads to nowhere will not revive confidence, which is the missing factor. Mm. And unfortunately, to revive that confidence, you have to admit, uh, rather like going to confession and doing your penance in the Catholic Church, you have to admit the errors of your ways (laughs) and face up to the reality you describe. Now, to admit the errors of your ways, unfortunately, means that the biggest loss would be in the credibility of the Communist Party, Mm. which is why... Uh, under the leadership it's got, it cannot actually turn around and do the things that are needed because to do so would be to admit uh, that a lot of the policies that are in place have been mistaken. Mm. And and also they would have to unwind um, quite a lot of the growth that they previously reported because it's fictitious really, isn't it? It's based upon uh, these assets which are, are really fake assets because they're not valued properly at their, at their real value. That's the nature of every bubble economy, isn't it? That you mm. get these super growth rates, super productivity rates, happy workers, and lots of people making uh, a bundle of dough on the on their flats, apartments, and houses for a period, and it looks great. But because the the, the bedrock, the actual the point uh, on which all of this is pirouetting, is overvalued assets inflated by incorrect policies, it comes tumbling down and goes into reverse. 
And the only way to reverse that reversal is to face up to the reality of what the real value of those assets are, what the problems with the legacy loans are, and more importantly, what the problem about the misallocation of resources, including labor, to things like construction, the things like uh, uh, real estate development have actually been. And you have, you have to really do this. There's no secret about how you do it. It's been done in dozens of economies. But the nature of the bubble, as you correctly uh, described, is that the whole economic growth, the whole of that so-called welfare, was actually pirouetting on one factor, which is inflated asset prices. Mm. misallocation of resources. Mm. And, yeah. and in a sort of a proper market economy, one of the ways in which that would uh, resolve itself is through bankruptcies. These, these companies would, would eventually uh, have to be wound up. Yes, you do. It's as simple as that. I mean, if you, if you, if you were to look at any property bubble, and God knows we've lived through a lot of property bu- bu- bubble, bubbles, you and I, that is precisely what happened. Mm. You have to clean out the system like flushing the loo by allowing the bankrupt to go bankrupt. If you try and keep them all floating around in a sea of liquidity, you will neither have the confidence to make the economy recover, and nor will you have the economics to make the recovery possible. Mm. Mm. Francis, I, I want to get your thoughts on the local markets as we move yeah. into the, the new year. The Hang Seng is down this month. It's down about 2.5%. It's slumped now for four straight months since July. Uh, it's down 16% this year, which is the worst performer among all the global um, indices. And we're going to see the fourth year of declines, which is the, actually the longest losing streak in the Hang Seng's it, uh, history average daily turnover in is down forty in world yeah. history. Okay, uh, foreign <laughs> investors they continue to pour their money out of uh, stock exchanges in uh, Hong Kong and China. Net uh, net inflows this year now to the mainland markets have been reduced to the least since two thousand and sixteen. That's according to Goldman Sachs and the CSI three hundred on the mainland down fourteen percent year to date. Um, I don't want to ask you to predict, you know, is it going to go up next year? Because it's, it's very hard, isn't it, to, to call the bottoms on these things. What, what I'm interested in knowing is what are the conditions that you would like to see to try and um, bring back confidence into the Chinese market so that we could maybe see a sustained rally at some point uh, next year? Well, the, the top three internet companies right now, uh, bike dance uh, is, is TikTok. Uh, Shein, uh, which is uh, headquartered in the, in Singapore, and then Timu, which is headquartered in Boston, of all places. Mm. And these three are the top internet companies, and they're drawing all the interest. And they have uh, taken over from uh, Alibaba and Tencent and JD. So, and uh, so, if we want to revive the uh, Chinese and Hong Kong uh, stock market, you have to bring these three companies back to Hong Kong and China. Mm. Because uh, you cannot expect Alibaba and Tencent to perform miracles. They have done that, uh, and then they have passed their prime already. Mm. They are not the most innovative and, and, and high-growth company uh, it, uh, uh, as it used to. So bring the high growth companies to Hong Kong and China, and then we'll, we will see a revival in the stock markets in Hong Kong and China. 
But there's a good reason why those companies don't want to be in Hong Kong and China, I presume, isn't there? Why C is, for example, headquartered in Singapore as, a, as, opposed, to, as opposed to here. Yeah, that's right. Well, uh, the Chinese government can do, can do miracles. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, in, it's very instructive, isn't it, to look at sort of, if you like, the demise of Alibaba, for example. It's no longer even the biggest e-commerce platform in, in China. Um, it's been overtaken by uh, Pindodo, um, both in yeah. terms of market valuation and in terms of um, sales as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just read somewhere that the actually uh, TikTok is taking more money in than uh, uh, Tencent already. Mm. Tencent used to be the most profitable inter- internet company uh, in China, but now it's TikTok. So uh, I, I, I think the, uh, the Chinese government uh, must lean on the, uh, who, whoever is in charge of TikTok and, and get them listed in China mm. or Hong Kong. <laughs> David, final final thoughts from you. If if we're going to see a revival in uh, in Chinese markets, both here in Hong Kong and on the on the mainland, what what are the conditions that need to be in place so that we can start to restore confidence? Well, I think um, in an odd sort of way, the markets would probably welcome most a clear sign that uh, policy in China was changing towards the sort of policy which is surgical about the addressing the various problems related to property. I think that would be serious, but it would be not based upon printing more money or spending more money, but on dealing with the problems of solvency and misallocation of resources throughout the economy. That has to be number one. And number two is any sign of a fall between the US and China. Uh, Whether that was because Trump uh, or somebody uh, better uh, was to uh, be seen to be the next president, even if Trump with his relationships based on transactions rather than upon ideologies would I think be greeted by the markets as possibly a glimmer of hope. But uh, obviously Haley would be a much better candidate that would be number two. And number three is the revival in global growth, which at the moment is looking very, very wan and meager. They would be my three uh, things for, for, for the markets to go better, not just the Chinese market, but markets in general. Okay. Well, look, thank you very much for your thoughts uh, this morning. And thank you for your contributions to Money Talk over 2023. Wish you both a very happy Christmas and look forward to speaking again in 2024. You heard there David Roche, who is President and Global Strategist at Independent Strategy, and Francis Lun, who is the CEO of GEO Securities. I'm joined now by Peter Kim, who is Head of Global Investment Strategy at KB Financial Group in Seoul. Very good morning to you, Peter. 
Good morning. Good morning. Happy holidays. Happy holidays to you too. Well, look, let's look back a little bit at uh, 2023. What a year it's been for uh, for macro fund managers. They've got it completely wrong, haven't they, this year? Um, the, the consensus was at the beginning of the year, the US was going to slide into recession, uh, weighed down by all these interest rate rises, and China was going to boom because uh, they'd come out of COVID lockdowns and the consumer was going to go on, on a happy spending spree. Instead, we saw the complete opposite. Uh, the US has boomed and, and China's slumped. What's gone wrong? Ah, well, it's, uh, that's a that's a long, long explanation. Uh, if we have one, um, I think uh, it's clear now that uh, this business cycle that we're in is uh, unique and unlike anyone that we've seen before. Um, I can maybe just cite maybe a couple of uh, key differences. One is that after thirty years of massive free trade globalization, we have a pause or, or reversal of that. And that has put in a, a massive structural uh, 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 factor that has derailed anything that we've seen. Uh, second is that uh, we have a very unique situation of uh, tightening monetary conditions, but everything else is very, very loose. Mm. Um, so that explains the U.S. part. Then, uh, of course, for China, uh, you have the added uh, variable of politics um, getting in the way of economic policy, uh, unlike anything we've seen probably in the past 50 years. Uh, so uh, if you look at the previous 50 years of normal economic cycles, we have those three factors that has derailed any, any ability for economists to put in a forecast. Mm. And is any of that going to change um, in 2023 uh, or in 2024, sorry, because um, if if you look at China, for example, uh, the the politics are pretty well entrenched, aren't they? I mean, if you look at the problems in the property sector, unless the government is prepared to let um, these losses be realised, someone has got to take these massive losses that are sitting um, on the balance sheets of local governments, of banks, of property developers, someone's got to take them somewhere. But the government would have to basically admit that it got it wrong. It doesn't seem to want to do that. Yeah, I mean, um, I think, uh, you know, we have politics winning over policymakers, clearly. Mm. And that's not just China. I mean, I think we have the situation in uh, many other parts of the world. Uh, But sticking with China for the moment, uh, you'd have to think that uh, the status quo uh, will sustain uh, for many more years. Mm. Um, um, I don't see real political incentive for them to change the stance that they've established uh, this year in the past few years. For the US, it's a little more tricky, but I have to say that the recent uh, uh, surprising pivot by the US Fed on their interest rate policy has to be somewhat influenced by the coming elections. And you, you think that's that? You think that's politics behind that? So obviously, the Fed would deny that, of course. But one, I think uh, you know, and it's not just U.S. Right? I mean, the, I think the so-called independence of central banks um, um, is really become uh, something of uh, uh, history now. Mm. Um, now, for varying degree on who, which central bank you speak to, but I think uh, we have we are entering into a era again where. 
politics is winning over policymakers, and it's increasingly so. It's just a matter of degree. Mm. So we go into 2024 now um, with the reverse to how we started 2023. Everyone now is very negative about China, um, and it's going to be another bad year uh, for China. And the US uh, is is just going to carry on, um, you know, growing it. We've got this Goldilocks economy, according to the macro analysts, of um, you know inflation that's coming down, um, an economy that's going to have a soft landing. So the reverse predictions now <laughs> at the beginning of this year. I'm always, whenever something is so, so consensus, I'm always looking for excuse to take the other side. Yep. Uh, I think, and we have that situation right now, that, as you mentioned, that U.S. is in all their logs, it looks great. China is now, you know, you know decade-long uh, derating, and then nothing's going to change. So, you know, I'm tempted, and I will continue to uh, seek the other side of that argument. Um, but I think... Uh, judging by the rally that we've seen in U.S. equities and the continued underperformance of uh, China, I'm tempted to call for at least a short to medium term reversal mm-hmm. uh, of those two markets, purely just because on valuation and purely because the fund flow is so uh, crowded into both of those trades. Uh, I, But I cannot get myself to say that the structural story on both sides uh, is going to materially change in the coming year. Mm. I mean, if you look at the US, um, investors um, are, are sort of approaching the new year with a, a very l- large number of positive sort of assumptions priced into stocks. They're assuming the Fed is going to cut um, at least three times, while the markets is saying six times now uh, next year. Earnings growth is is supposed to carry on beyond what is normal and what is average. They're saying inflation is going to decline back to the Fed's target, and we're going to have this nice economic soft landing. It seems almost a bit too good to be true, doesn't it? Oh, exactly. Um, and uh, let's just rewind back a few months ago and remind ourselves of those inflationary fears and that that inflation was going to be uh, sticky. Uh, we still have geopolitical situation that's still not resolved. We still have China uh, disengaged from the global supply chain. Uh, and we still have uh, 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 bottlenecks in many commodities. Um, and I think that uh, we have to remind us of that, uh, that those three factors have not permanently been resolved. Mm. So I'm a little more cautious about it. Um, and uh, But again, um, you know, everything is relative to expectations as far as financial markets go. And I think at least in the short term, maybe we've uh, gone ahead of ourselves uh, uh, taking U.S. as uh, Goldilocks. Mm. Uh, but the problem is, if you were sceptical and had many reasons to be sceptical, you would have lost out this year. The MSCI All World's up 19% this year. So it was down 20% in 2022. It's basically made up uh, most of that uh, plunge that we saw um, in 2022. But we've got this odd situation now where US stocks are surging to a record high um, and bonds are pricing in a recession. Something doesn't seem right there either. Yeah, I mean... The- um, and that's not the only thing that doesn't sync with the historical correlation. You know, we have, uh, you mentioned earlier that China in a deflationary uh, uh, phase, perhaps. Uh, Europe, I think, still it has a mild form of stagflation. Mm. Um, and, you know, most ironically, Japan is in a uh, reflationary recovery. So uh, how about that for the world uh, tipping on its head? 
yeah. but going back to bond market versus equity market, I think uh, it's uh, again I go back to what I said earlier is that um, while we have seen official interest rates rise globally, everything else on a fiscal side and in terms of central bank balance sheet is at a historical high or very close to. Mm. Uh, so this idea that like we have been tightening, you can you can look at the some of the uh, data coming out of the U.S. The retail participation, the wages are growing, uh, central bank balance sheet is high, uh, and the uh, MMF balance sheet uh, is massively at historical high. So you have uh, a pretty good uh, liquidity situation despite the official interest rates. Mm. Now, final point on that, Mr. Powell who originally, remember, called this current inflation to be transitory. Now there are people saying that maybe it was transitory after all. <laughs> so maybe he's, uh, uh, he's personally motivated to prove uh, uh, everyone, himself and everyone else that, that he was right after all. So that's a little irony once again. But there are risks, aren't there, that it, to, to inflation on the upside as well. I mean, we're seeing all these supply chain disruptions uh, in the Red Sea, um, over in the Panama Canal um, uh, as well. We've got uh, you know two wars going on. You can see there are risks to the upside for inflation that it could come back again. Uh, definitely. Um, and uh, if we just sort of uh, uh, think about the typical election cycle for the U.S., you would have to assume that uh, uh, there's going to be a lot of fighting between the two uh, parties over there. Uh, and perhaps uh, whatever we spend on fiscal and monetary front to try to get the economy going next year may, may re result in us paying dearly or you Americans paying dearly in 2025, 2026. So mm. again, I do that the, the short-term gratification that we are uh, getting into uh, may uh, lead to long-term uh, uh, cost uh, of growth. And the other feature of this year is just the concentration um, of the market that we've seen. In the US, the five largest companies now make up nearly a quarter of the S&P 500, and the 50 most valuable companies in the index are 60% of its total weight. This is very unusual, isn't it? We don't normally see in, in normal markets anyway that type of concentration, which then also leads to a lot of volatility as well. Right. Um, so again, uh, the the argument of value versus growth. I mean, we had uh, value investors in the equities uh, make a, a comeback, but unfortunately, <laughs> that comeback wasn't very long. Um, yeah, I do think that there are a couple of things at play here. First is that the the retail participation is structurally taking up greater portion over the institutional money. Uh, that is continuing to uh, promote this idea that stock market is now a combination of gaming and gambling rather than uh, 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 fundamental value, uh, uh, as uh, financial theory will uh, uh, pr promote. Uh, a second is that uh, the ultimately, I do believe that very long term, that we're still in a deflationary environment, mm. uh, even though we have cycle, I think that there is a deflation backdrop uh, that is uh, structurally uh, 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 adding uh, valuation premium for long-term growth stocks. Uh, so um, as much as we can talk about value versus growth and how it doesn't make sense, 
I do think that some of these long-term uh, structural growth platforms will will uh, see uh, premium uh, sustain. Mm. The the retail investor does seem to be gambling, doesn't he? Because you, you look at things like these one-day options, for example, retail investors are piling into options that expire um, the, the same day, which was apparently part of the reason why we saw this big plunge um, in the, the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ on Wednesday because of the amount of put options that they bought. This, yep. this hardly can be classified as investing, really, can it? No, but, uh, you know... Uh you know, I cannot argue against that because, uh, you know, investing in stocks has always had that, you know, speculative premium to it, but that is expanding. I mean, I can point to you another example. Uh, look at Bitcoin. I mean, mm. it's now already approaching a historical high and there's absolutely no reason, given the regulatory scrutiny, given the interest rate environment for that speculation to, uh, to go into cryptos after all we've been through. I mean, it's only been just uh, uh, less than a couple of years that we've had that FTX and uh, crypto bubble so-called blow up, but here we are. So um, I think uh, this current generation, uh, uh, young generation that are entering into stock market, uh, either they are empowered by the inheritance they'll get from their uh, parents, or um, they are just structurally and psychologically uh, have no fear in punting their savings for that instant gratification. So mm. um, I, <laughs> I cannot say wrong. <laughs> you know? it's, a, it's a new way, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> that has escaped us clearly. <laughs> well, look, well, look, Peter, it's been a pleasure talking to you this year. Thank you very much for your insights. Look forward to speaking with you again next year. In the meantime, I wish you a very happy Christmas and, and happy new year. Thank you. And same to you. I enjoyed our segments uh, immensely. Look forward to more discussions. Happy holidays. That's Peter Kim, who is Head of Global Investment Strategy at the KB Financial Group in Seoul. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you very much for listening this morning and throughout 2023. I really appreciate you taking the time to download this podcast and for helping to support independent broadcasting in Hong Kong that's balanced and fair. This is the final Money Talk of 2023 as the show takes a break over Christmas and New Year. Money Talk will be back on Wednesday the 3rd of January when I'll have the latest business and finance news from Hong Kong and around Asia with analysis from our panel of expert guests, which will include Andrew Sullivan, founder of Asian Market Sense and Nick Marrow, lead for global trade at the Economist Intelligence Unit. And with a view from Japan will be to- Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. In the meantime, I wish you a Merry Christmas and a happy, healthy and successful New Year. See you in January. Money Talk.